The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word... We need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the one who wrote it, the one who is the ultimate author of it, God the Father. And through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can understand what God's Word has to say as He illuminates our thinking and helps us to see how these things apply to our lives. So we always begin with just a few moments of silent prayer so that if there's any unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with, we have the opportunity to do that to make sure that we are ready for our study of God's Word. So let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege to gather together as a body of believers and that all of this is because of your grace. You have loved us from eternity past. You have sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. You have prepared a plan that entails every dimension, every aspect, every detail. And now in this church age, you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who guides and leads us into all truth. Father, we pray now as we study the truth, your word which which our Lord said would be the basis for our sanctification and our spiritual life, We pray that you would help us to understand how these things apply to our lives, that we might be challenged by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems this morning as if we either face the challenge of the overly cool temperature or the obstacle of listening over the clanking of the antiquated heating system. I think Ken just took care of that. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. We'll pick up where we left off last time and then get into the next chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Galatians is right after 2 Corinthians and right before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. 
Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, last time when we got into this passage, I pointed out that the paragraph division, at least in the New American Standard Version, they make a paragraph division at uh, verse 25. And you can tell that because they usually boldface the number, at least in the NASB. I don't know what they do in other versions. But, uh, and then they break the chapter. The chapter is broken between 26 and 6.1. Now, unfortunately, these chapter divisions go way back into antiquated mid- early Middle Ages, and they're not always broken at good places. Verses don't always come at good places. And as I evaluate this entire passage... You have a, an aside or a parenthetical thought that Paul develops from verse 16 down through 25, bracketed by the commands, at least in the English, walk by means of the Spirit in verse 16, and then uh, walking, that is, following in the objective path laid out by the Holy Spirit in verse 25. And then he shifts the subject in verse 26, but it's really not a subject shift. It's a subject shift from verse 25, but it goes back and he's picking up the ideas that he was developing in verses 13 through 15, which is the idea of what we call impersonal love for all mankind, especially toward believers. And there's a problem in the congregation there, and it stems from the fact that after Paul and Barnabas had come to Galatia and initially brought the gospel to them, they were followed by a group of Jews who were called Judaizers. And they're called Judaizers because of their attempt to say, okay, it's fine to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, but that only gets you so much. You need a little more. You need something else, and that's going to come through becoming identified with Judaism and the Mosaic Law. So you have to become circumcised. The males have to become circumcised first, and then you have to apply and live on the basis of the Mosaic Law in order to advance spiritually. Now, Paul was correcting this entire false teaching in this epistle. He corrected the problem of legalism at salvation. So you have two areas where we run into legalism. One area is at the point of salvation. And here it's usually some form of uh, works plus faith salvation. Believe on Jesus and go to church. Believe on Jesus, reform your life. Somehow you need to do certain things. Pull yourself up. It's sort of encapsulated in that phrase that does not come from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's not biblical. In fact, that's legalism. God does all the work. We do none of it. He provided everything at the cross. So legalism at salvation took the form of you have to believe in Jesus plus the Mosaic Law. And then in the spiritual life, which is called sanctification... Sanctification is the technical theological term used in the Scriptures for our maturing in Christ. And this was also done through the Mosaic Law according to the legalists. So you have two systems of legalism operating in Galatia 
And Paul addressed the first one in the first two chapters. And starting in chapter 3, we saw him address the uh, problems in the second one. And legalism is always grounded on arrogance. There may be a lot of pseudo-humility and a lot of um, uh, pseudo-compassion and concern for people, but ultimately it's based on the concept that I'm bringing something to the table that impresses God with who I am and with what I've done. That somehow I can do certain things in my life that are going to gain God's approbation. They're going to gain God's approval. And so ultimately, this is emphasizing the idea that I have something of value. So it has a very subtle form of arrogance and in some cases a very profound and overt form of arrogance. And so Paul is addressing this because the problem with arrogance is it always ends up disrupting relationships. Disrupts relationships from families all the way up through congregations. And so there are a lot of these principles that we're going to see in these verses that have application to you in your family, to you in your marriage, to you in your work relationships, and to you in the church, in the relationships within the congregation. So it's not just something that is related to church that you can just sort of set aside and say, okay, this has something to do with how I relate to other people at church. It has to do with all of our relationships. And Paul established the basic underlying principle Back in verse 14, where he laid out the principle, it's a quote from Leviticus 19.18. In James uh, 2, 8 through 10, it's defined as the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the point is that because we're sinners, we always put ourselves first. We are self-oriented, I-oriented by nature. And so we always want to do what's best or what we think is best for ourselves. And what Paul is saying is the issue is get your eye off of self and get your eye onto other people and do what is best for them. That's how you love other people. It's not talking about some level of sentimentality, some kind of emotion, how you feel, some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling towards people, because, frankly, a lot of times we may not know uh, folks very well. We may not know, uh, we may not even like them personally, yet we are still commanded by Scripture to love one another, and this is the sign of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord told the, the disciples, before he left it, by this all men will know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another. And in contrast, we saw in verse 15 the antagonism, the breakdown of relationships and hostility that was going on in the congregation. And it has its roots in the arrogance and the legalism. People were running each other down. They were constantly looking in, judge, in a judgmental attitude at somebody else saying, well, you really need to come up to my standard. You need to do this. See, if you have some kind of superficial, overt standard for Christianity, then everybody tries to make everyone else conform to that, and it develops a judgmental attitude. And one of the problems that has always plagued Christianity is, and, and a true relationship with the Lord, it plagued Judaism, or true Israel worship in the Old Testament, that's how Pharisaism developed, is trying to reduce Scripture to some sort of external criterion where you start measuring and quantifying spiritual growth through some sort of overt behavior. And the thing is, the Scripture always puts the emphasis on the internal transformation, not simply an external transformation. So Paul is addressing the problem here. It's their mental attitude, the underlying mental attitude of arrogance. So he says in verse 26, we saw last time, he has a... Uh, imperative command there, let us not 
become boastful. And we looked at and reviewed the whole issue of uh, arrogance and conceit. This is really what this relates to, is don't become boastful, don't become proud of yourselves and your own conceit, thinking you really have done something that somehow impresses God. And we went over the four arrogant skills. The first was self-absorption. This is our mental attitude focus on self. The second is self-indulgence. In self-indulgence, you begin to work out your self-absorption and fulfilling all of your fantasies, all your desires, all of your lusts, doing whatever you want to with no regard to someone else. And then you have to justify that behavior. So this goes into self-justification. And finally, self-deception. As you progress in your use of the arrogant skills, you plunge from a level of objectivity to subjectivity, ultimately trying to look at life in terms of your own emotions and your own background and your own uh, how it affects you and your own personal sphere of life. Now, this word translated boastful in the uh, New American Standard is the Greek word kenodoxos. Looks like this in the Greek. K-E-N-O-D-O-X-O-S. And it's a compound word from kenos, meaning vain, and doxos, meaning glory. And what it has come to mean is to be proud of something with no basis for that pride. To think you're something when you're nothing. And this is the essential problem of all legalism, is that we tend to think that we do bring something to the table, that, that frankly we're just such a nice person and we're just so wonderful and we're so important to God's plan and we have such a wonderful personality that, that God is really glad to have us on the team. And there's nothing whatsoever that God finds of value in us other than the fact that we're human beings and because we're created in the image and glory of God, God has loved us and provided eternal salvation for us. It is only after salvation, then, that we enter into a personal family relationship with God. Uh, John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. So it is only at salvation that we enter into the family of God, and then we have a familial relationship. But even then, it is not based on who and what we are. It's based on who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. There's absolutely nothing that man can do that accrues to his own doxos, his own glory. There is nothing of value that we bring to the table. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we begin to orient our lives to the whole principle of grace. And grace means that God has done everything for us and we don't do anything. That frankly, as far as life is concerned, we are just as inherently wicked and evil as anybody. The only thing that keeps us from being that way is the grace of God. And so God has uh, provided everything for us at salvation. So we have the command not become conceited. In other words, that's part of our arrogant skills. And then that is followed by two participles in the Greek. And these participles, if you understand a little Greek syntax, whenever you have a participle, a participle is an adjectival, um, or is a, it's an adjectival noun, or an adjectival verb, really. It's an adjectival verb, 
So it can function as either an adjective or a verb. And what really tells you the difference in Greek is whether or not it has a definite article with it. And since this lacks the definite article, that means that these are going to be two adverbial participles, and they are adverbial of manner. And that means that they are going to describe the how of the verb. They give us an example of how you would be boastful, how you would be conceited. And in this particular congregation, they were doing it, they were being conceited, and it was exemplifying itself in the manner of these two particular verbs. The first is the verb prokaleo. P-R-O-K-A-L-E-O. And prokaleo is a very ancient word in Greek. It goes back to 5th century B.C. classical Greek. It goes back to the Greek of Homer, the Greek of the Odyssey and the Iliad. And it is, still maintains the same basic meanings all the way up into Koine Greek. It didn't change its emphasis much. It means to provoke, to challenge someone, to call someone out in a contest to do combat, much as Achilles did as he challenged uh, Paris and others of tr- outside the gates of Troy to hand-to-hand combat. It's the same thing that Goliath did with David. Uh, in the valley of Ephes Damim when he called forth a challenge, wanted a challenger to do one-on-one combat with the Israelites. So it's that idea, calling some, someone forth to a contest or to combat. It means to stir up what is evil in someone else, to antagonize them, to incite them to anger or to resentment. So one of the ways that they were showing their conceit, their arrogance, was that they were challenging people in terms of their behavior. They would come up and they would tell somebody, you know, if you're going to come to church, you really shouldn't dress that way. Or I saw you go to a movie. And, you know, if you're a believer, you really shouldn't be going to that kind of a movie because somebody might see you and that's, that's not a good testimony. And uh, things of that nature. So they were... Or maybe it was something legitimate and they saw someone or they were involved with someone who, who uh, lost their temper. And so they came up and they said, you know, I, I saw you lose your temper and I just want to help you correct that. And that comes from this sort of a superior attitude sometimes that uh, because of the way it's done and because of the attitude, uh, we're going to see in verse 6 that we are to be involved in restoring other believers But the issue is how you do it and the framework within which you're doing it and your attitude. And their attitude, because it was grounded in arrogance and legalism, was in such a way that there there was this subtext of, I'm really better than you and let me help you. And we've all had that happen. Sometimes the other person has been uh, well-meaning and they have been right and we've just been arrogantly caught up in our own sin or our own wrong behavior. And we haven't wanted to listen, so we have responded in resentment and anger. At other times, it is the attitude of that person because of their arrogance that immediately they are butting their heads into some place that doesn't belong, and we react in resentment and anger. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. is He's not saying don't get involved in other people's lives or don't ever try to correct somebody or encourage somebody. 
He's saying don't do it from a conceited, arrogant frame of reference based on legalism where the way in which you do it immediately is like slapping somebody in the face and challenging them so that the first thing that happens is you, you incite them to anger and to resentment and to promote an antagonistic relationship. That's not the point. The point is not to tear people down and point out where they're failing. The point, as Paul will say in verse 1 of chapter 6, is to restore them. So if you can't do it in the right attitude, don't do it at all. The second verb that's used here is the Greek word thoneo, which is a little hard to pronounce in the English. looks like this. P-H-T-H-O-N-E-O. Thoneo. And thoneo means to uh, experience a feeling of ill will due to real or presumed advantage experienced by someone else. It means to move someone to jealousy or envy, to bear ill will or malice towards them. So Paul says, don't become conceited and and thus be challenging or provoking one another to resentment and anger, and don't be coming from a position of malice or envy where you are adopting a position of superiority towards the other person. Why? Because it goes back to that concept of, of uh, conceitedness. There's nothing that any one of us has to bring to the table. So you may sit over here and you may see somebody and they have a problem and you decide that you want to encourage them and maybe they're a friend or maybe they're just an acquaintance. Well, whatever your blind spot is, they may see that as well, and they may have something to help you with. So when you help someone, and, and this happens especially in marriages, sometimes a, a spouse will get, get antagonistic about some behavior. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's a major thing with, with the spouse. And they begin to just kind of dig on that, and they begin to uh, uh, make an issue out of that and nag a little bit. Next thing you know, what you're doing is just generating hostility and you're not promoting a positive growth within that relationship. And that's what Paul is saying here, is there's a right way and a wrong way to handle it, and the wrong way is to think that just because you don't have that problem, and they do, that you're somewhat superior, because frankly, you've got some problems as well, and they will probably at one point or another come back and address that in your life. So it has to be from a position of grace orientation. And grace orientation recognizes that all of us are sinners. All of us are capable of falling into and getting involved in any category of sin, whatever it might be. Never think that you're in a position above and beyond any sin, whatever it is. However gross it might seem to you next year, something might happen, you might have your guard down, and the next thing you know you've been trapped into that sin. And so there needs to be a response of grace orientation. This is not necessarily to excuse the behavior, but this is to recognize that, okay, I'm no better than you are, so let's figure out how we can solve the problem and get back up in fellowship with the Lord and growing, walking by means of the Holy Spirit and get past this problem. The focus should never be on, okay, you've made this mistake I'm going to make you suffer for that for the rest of your life. We're going to make an issue out of this and always remind you of how you failed. 
See, that's unfortunately the attitude of arrogance and the attitude of sin nature, especially if in that process we have been hurt by something that that other person has done. So Paul says, don't become conceited, focusing on how you're superior in that particular arena and challenge or envy, uh, challenge one another or come from a position of superiority. Then he gives the positive mandate in verse 6. First, he warns you, really watch out for arrogance. And this is something, when you get into this subject, arrogance is so subtle and it rears its ugly head. And, it, and I find that in personal relationships, if there is, especially if someone has their feelings hurt or someone gets offended, someone um, is truly hurt or taken advantage of, then it's very difficult for that person to come back and operate on grace orientation and true and genuine humility to move towards correcting that other person. Yet that's the first thing that has to happen is that you have to make sure that you have confessed sins. So you have to confess sins and make sure you are walking by means of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says this in verse verse 1. Brethren, Even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now let's do a little exegesis here, figure out what the Greek is saying underneath this translation, because that will help us clarify the thoughts. It starts off with, whenever you have the conditional English word, if, We only have one way in English to express that conditional clause, and there are really five ways in Greek. There's only four that show up in the Scriptures. And uh, this is what's called a third-class condition. First-class condition is if, and we'll assume the uh, condition is true. The second-class condition is if, and we'll assume the condition is false. Third-class condition is if, and this might happen, it might not happen. And sometimes it can have the idea of if, and it probably will, if, and it probably will not. Here, it has the idea that, that this is fairly likely. This is probably going to happen in your life many, in fact, I would say this will happen in your life many times. Unless you think that you're an island, and you just don't want to have relationships with people, and you just want to distance yourself from, from folks. But if you have any level of relationship with people, either in your family, your marriage, the congregation, people at work, then this is something that applies to you. Brethren, even if a man, and here we have the uh, word anthropos, which is the Greek word for for not male as man, but really just any human being, a generic term referring to any member of the human race, any human being, even if a person is caught in any trespass. Now, the word for trespass clearly means a sin, but we have to take a minute and look at what this verb means. It is, from the original, is prolambano. And there is a lot of discussion in the literature about the exact meaning of this word, simply because it's not used very much. It's not used very much in secular literature. It's not used very much in the Bible. And it seems to have a wide range of meaning. It means to anticipate something on the one hand. It means at times to be, uh, perhaps to be, some suggest it means to be uh, caught or to be discovered in in an act. 
and in other cases it seems to simply suggest that you've been, uh, uh, somebody has been overtaken or surprised. Now, one thing it does not mean, although there are some people who have taught this, it doesn't mean to detect or discover. So Paul is not talking about going around, looking in somebody's life, violating their privacy, and trying to find out what sins might be going on in their life. See, everybody's entitled to a certain degree of privacy. Privacy is a basis for all freedom. You look at freedom of property in the Old Testament, go back to the Mosaic Law, and pr- private ownership of property is the basis for, for um, uh, a free economy. And so privacy is critical. A person has to have privacy in their life so that they can make their own decisions about, about doctrine, about how they're going to relate to the Lord. Sometimes we're going to be going forward. Sometimes we're going to be going backwards. That's characteristic of everyone. Every single believer advances some days, retreats some days, and the whole process of spiritual growth really is kind of messy. It doesn't follow on a straight line. And the way the Lord deals with each of us is a little different from the way He deals with somebody else. And the Lord happens to know just exactly where the weak spots are in each of us, and so He brings those circumstances to bear that focus on those weak spots. So this is not talking about going out, trying to find something wrong or looking for something wrong in somebody else's life. It has the idea sometimes uh, of, of uh, being overtaken, being surprised, um, perhaps being caught off guard in a sin. Now, as I look at this, I don't think it's really talking about the fact that all of a sudden I'm going through life and all of a sudden I'm surprised and I wake up and I'm involved in some sin that, and I'm, how did I get here? How did this happen? I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think this is more the idea of portraying sin as a trap. James uses that imagery over in James 1, that sin is like a bait in a trap, and we had the temptation is the bait in the trap, and it's only when we uh, take it, when we exercise our volition, that all of a sudden we are now in that snare. We've been caught by sin. And that's Paul's approach, is that none of us are above any particular sin. That's why grace and forgiveness are stressed so much in the Scripture. So this is talking about a person that has been trapped in some sin. They've been caught in this sin. They yielded to temptation and they've sinned. And now, how are we going to restore that person? What is the process? Now, this can be any kind of situation. It can be the fact you could be looking across the table at your spouse and they're extremely irritated and, and get their focus on some detail of life and they're angry and frustrated and, and perhaps it's necessary to say, well, let's just stop and think about this, rebound a minute, make sure we're back in fellowship and uh, figure out how the Lord's going to use this. Just a real gentle sort of reminder. And it may be that, uh, uh, and I, I, I'm always amazed, I had a, um, classmate of mine from seminary who was um, in a job, and, and, and I don't know whether he was truly guilty or not. I know his side of the story, but, but he got involved in a money laundering operation, and uh, his wife stuck with him, and he ended up having to spend about uh, six months in federal prison. And I went down, and uh, he was also a member of my congregation, and I spent um, a good bit of time visiting him 
in prison every week. And here you had a wife who stuck with him even though he had committed a criminal act and uh, she stayed with him. They worked through the situation and they have a very strong marriage. And in marriage relationships, often one person can do things that are incredibly harmful, hurtful, damaging in relationships. But if their attitude is, okay, I need to confess that, move on, it's not to excuse it or to realize there aren't consequences, but that there is a high goal here, and that's spiritual growth. And none of us are above or beneath any sin that may come down the road. Now, earlier I talked about privacy, and privacy is an important issue because what happens sometimes, and, and I just uh, like the, using marriage as an example here because that's our closest level of intimacy. Whenever it comes to confronting someone with sin or, or a problem in their life, we really have a circles of intimacy. Your closest circles would be family and spouses. Then you might have a, a, another layer of intimacy, which includes your friends, but you're not nearly as close or intimate with them as you might be with your husband or wife or, or a family member. Then you have another level of intimacy which relates to uh, uh, maybe uh, business peers, people you work with on a day-to-day basis, and they're more than acquaintances, but they're not really friends. And then there's another layer that would simply be uh, acquaintances. I can't remember how to spell I always get confused on spelling that. AQ. Anyway, I'm not going to worry about that. You get this various levels of intimacy. Now, the thing is, the closer you move inside in relationships, the more you give up privacy. You realize that? That when you get more involved with somebody out of your own volition, you're giving up privacy. And so you get involved with somebody and they become your friend. And part of friendship might be that they say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, you really shouldn't do that. Well, you can't say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a doctrine of privacy here and you need to leave me alone and not get involved in my life. Well, you've already let them get involved in your life. It's too late now. You've opened that door and you've said you're going to be my friend or you're going to be my, uh, you're, you're a close friend or, or, or you're going to be my, my spouse or you're a member of my family. Uh, it's too late to claim that privacy. If you wanted to claim that, you should have stayed out here somewhere and not gotten involved in a relationship. See, the closer we get in relationships, because you're a sinner and they're a sinner, we're all going to have problems at some point or another. And so we have to recognize that, that um, as we have these intimate relationships, especially in the framework of marriage, we have to be willing to, to say, okay, this person can fail... But if they're willing for restoration, then we're going to figure out how to get from where we are in this position of failure back up towards spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Happens in a congregation. Now, this is one reason why, and and I was talking about marriage, and one of the things I wanted to point out is what will happen is you've got a situation here where you've got a wife and a husband. And all of a sudden, let's just... The wife um, does something. Okay, we're not going to say what it is, but the wife does something. Maybe she's nagging him all the time. Maybe she never cleans the house and he's a real neat freak and he's got everything in his drawer all lined up and all everything's color-coded and uh, every, there's a spot, every hanger 
in the closet is exactly one and three-quarter inches apart. I know someone like that. Never, nothing is ever amiss. And it gets on his case after a while. And so he goes down, he's at work, and he starts talking about that. Now, he should never do that. But let's make it a little worse. She's not just a, has a problem with, with uh, that. She gets involved in some sort of, of uh, maybe alcoholism or, or drug abuse. Or maybe she um, gets involved in, uh, in, in an affair, just, you know, just has a, a blip on a radar screen and it's a, you know, not a continuous thing and she just makes a mistake. Whatever it might be, there's a whole series of sins that can come to play. Now, if he starts talking about this, he gets down at church with the men in the church and says, well, we need to pray for my wife. Now, all of a sudden, other people start finding out about things that are part of their intimate relationship. And once you tell somebody something, that means that it can go just about anywhere. Don't doesn't guarantee that it's going to be kept quiet. And now other people find out about this. And so not only does she have a problem to deal with, and let's say she really wants to kick this, and they want to kick this together, and they're going to resolve this, but what's happened is by expressing this to other people, now it's not just an issue between the two of them. It's an issue between her and all these people down at the church because they all know about it. And so now you have other levels of pressure being brought in. I've seen this with uh, couples going through marriage problems, whatever it may be, and, it's, and all of a sudden everybody, you know, the wife sometimes will start talking about her, her husband who's, you know, he's really not interested in spiritual things and he's really not coming to church and, and we need to be praying for him. You know, it's always that that excuse, we're going to gossip under the guise of prayer requests. And um, there's a little character assassination going on. But now, all these folks at the church know about their problems, so they not only have the problem to deal with, which is hard enough to overcome in a lot of cases anyway, but they have a secondary problem that they've generated by talking about it out of the, out of the framework of the family. And so this is why it's so important to keep things, to recognize privacy. When somebody has a problem, recognize their privacy and that they have a right to deal with that before the Lord. But if you've been brought into an intimate relationship with them where you are able to be involved in encouraging them, praying for them, reminding them of doctrine, that's how you restore someone. First of all, encouraging them to remember that we have confession, that there's no sin. It's too great for the plan of God. There's no sin that will overwhelm the plan of God. God knew about every single sin we would ever commit from eternity past, and it was taken care of on the cross. So the first thing we have to do is make sure we get back in a right right relationship with the Lord, and that's the first of the problem-solving devices, the first of the stress busters. Then we have to start talking about what it means to walk by means of the Spirit, and in terms of applying all of the various problem-solving devices, the various stress busters, faith rest drill, promises, whatever. And, of course, that involves the fact that the person who has somehow gotten into carnality is willing to recognize the fact, yeah, I really blew it. I really have a problem in this area of my behavior. I have a problem with my temper. I have a problem with lying. I have a problem with um, uh, taking things that aren't mine or whatever it might be. I've got this problem, and I need to deal with that. And since we are 
friends. Now, now what's happened in modern Christianity, and it just, it, it's abhorrent to me, is this idea of, of um, that we ought, need to encourage one another, and they take that to mean anybody else who's a believer. And one of the things that's come out of this is something called spiritual formation groups. And this, this is a, it's a real superficial, artificial kind of construct. And I've seen guys who, I didn't have to do any of this, thankfully, when I went through seminary. But it's popular now among several seminaries. And you, everybody has to be in a spiritual formation group. And you get together with four or five guys, and everybody has to tell all the horrible sins they did and what their real sinful problems are and just, you know, air all their dirty laundry in front of everybody. And it generates a pseudo-intimacy. See, the issue is that you can do things like that perhaps in certain relationships that you have where you have built trust and you have built intimacy over a period of time. We all have one or two people in our lives that we can really let our hair down with and we can talk to. And there are some people we'll never talk to, to about anything in our lives because we're just too embarrassed about the fact that we have those sins and we don't want anybody to be aware of it. But... We have those levels of intimacy, and you can't create them artificially through discipleship groups or church programs or, or intimacy encounters or whatever they are because it's just that. It's artificial. It's setting up. These things take time. And so the context in which Paul is talking about this is the context of having relationships. When he talks about encouraging one another and restoring one another, it's the same attitude that we have when, when we read, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, to pray without ceasing. So you don't take that and interpret it to mean that I just need to be have my head bowed and my eyes closed praying from the moment I wake up in the morning until the moment I go to bed at night. We realize that what that means is that we're to have a continual attitude of prayer. It doesn't mean we're to pray every single waking minute of the day. Neither does it mean that when we're to pray for one another, restore one another, encourage one another, uh, that we're to do that with every single believer we run into. We don't have that, that foundation of intimacy and trust established on which this has to take place. Another thing I want to point out here is this isn't talking about a formal church discipline type of scenario. This is just talking about what happens in day-to-day relationships with people. This isn't talking about church discipline, which has become kind of a popular thing lately, especially in some legalistic churches where you always try to figure out certain things that if we find out that somebody in the church is doing this or doing that, then we're going to kick them out. I always wonder, well, okay, you kick them out of the church, where are they going to hear the truth so that they can correct the problem in their life? So now that they're outside the church, where are they going to get any doctrine, where are they going to be reminded of the truth of God's Word and God's grace and all the principles they need to recover? So you've just aggravated the problem. And, of course, everybody goes to two passages, Matthew 18 and and 1 Corinthians 5. And 1 Corinthians 5 is, I think, one of the more interesting passages because there you have a man who is married to his stepmother. Now, that's not considered incest, I don't think, in our culture, but it was in the Greek culture. And it's in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a cesspool of carnality, just a perverse seaport town in Greece, and every, the, it had been uh, originally a city, then it was destroyed uh, by, the, by the Romans, and then they rebuilt it as a colony, and they put a lot of retired military people in there. Now, we all know that some retired military people are pretty good, but we also know that when you have a military seaport town, that that can also attract 
just all kinds of things. And as a commercial area with shipping coming in from Asia and Africa and Europe all meeting there in that Corinthian seaport, they brought all their world religions and all the fertility cults and everything else. And it was just an anything-goes kind of environment. You had all kinds of of uh, prost- cultic prostitution going on. You had drunken orgies up in the hills under the guise of religion in the uh, uh, Bacchian festivals, the worship of the god Dionysius, who was also called Bacchus. And all these things were going on. And yet, when Paul deals with this one individual who has married his stepmother, the issue is that this has become a problem for the unbelievers in Corinth. That ought to cause people to wake up. He's not taught, he's already accused. And when you read through all the problems in that church in Corinth, I mean, they've got all kinds of problems. They're divisive, they're argumentative, they're committing all kinds of sins, they're getting drunk at the Lord's table, orgies, all of these things are going on in the church. Paul doesn't say, kick those people out because there wouldn't be anybody left. The person he hones in on is the guy who's committed a sin that is viewed as a sin by even the lowest, most immoral pagans outside the church. They're offended by this. So it offends even the low standards of, those, of the perverted Corinthians. Number two, it is publicly known. This isn't some private sin. It isn't something that's just known by two or three people. This is something that everybody in Corinth knew about. And it offended everybody. It violated their cultural norms and standards. And so Paul said that in the eyes of the unbelieving world, if, we, if the church accepts this guy in because everybody knows what he's doing and, even, and it even offends the unbeliever, you need to remove him because it is dishonoring the Lord. Now that's a far cry from finding out that somebody in the church commits this sin or that sin. And so... Uh, we don't want him in the church. And Dan was telling me when I was I spent a couple of days down at, with Dan Thursday and Friday trying to set up some uh, field ed credits with uh, Dan Ingram uh, and his work at Capital Bible Seminary that last year when they were in 1 Corinthians uh, and going through 1 Corinthians 5, they had a guy, one, a guy in the church who was an assistant pastor at some church somewhere in the area. And he raised his hand in class and he says, well, I'm just, we're struggling with this at our church because we've got a guy at our church who smokes and we're trying to decide whether or not we ought to exercise church discipline. You know, I, I, I commended Dan for his ability to uh, keep a straight face through all of that and not to uh, just fly off the, uh, bounce off the walls. You know, if, uh, if those are the kinds of things that we're going to hone in on, what do you do with, uh, okay, if that's the worst sin in the congregation, what are some of the other sins? What about arrogance? What about pride? What about uh, people who are lying? And Are we just going to start kicking everybody out of the church? Well, no, that's not the principle of church discipline. Church discipline, though, when it is practiced and you have... ...congregation should be because they're doing something either criminal... Uh, I know of one case where where the church had to uh, remove somebody because uh, of uh, some uh, tendencies towards pederasty and pedophilia, and because there was a suspicious occurrence on the at, at the church between this individual and a, and a young young child, and so that person had to be removed from uh, ever coming back to that congregation. Those are the kinds of things where you exercise church discipline, not because somebody. A couple in the church decides to get a divorce 
or not because somebody found out that, you know, somebody got caught in adultery or somebody lied on their income tax or is going to be uh, committed some fraud and they're going to be thrown in jail. So that's, that's how I take it on, on church discipline. Now, if it becomes an issue where that particular individual is causing disruption by their behavior, by one of those behaviors in the whole congregation, this especially can be true in a small congregation like we have, then it might be necessary just so that there's not a lot of uh, people vibrating every time that person walks in the front door to ask them not to come back. But the issue here is not on trying to point out where somebody has failed and not, not spending all your time focusing on the failure, but spending your time working on the solution and on restoration, realizing that but for the grace of God, there go the rest of us. We could all fall into that trap of carnality, whatever it might have been. And we need to treat one another in the same way and with the same level of grace and forgiveness that we would want to be treated. treated. So just a couple of points to review. First of all, it's not addressed to just anyone in the congregation or everyone in the congregation. Paul is addressing this to a particular group of people. He says, you who are spiritual. And this word is the the adjective or the pronoun pneumatikos. And I think in context here, it's talking about those who are walking by means of the Spirit, what he's just described in verses 16 through 25 of the previous chapter. Now, let's draw this diagram here so we understand the dynamics. Here you are, you just became a believer, and you are a spiritual infant. Up here, you are, a, you are a spiritually mature adult. Over here, you have the realm of walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And over here, you have the arena of the flesh, the sin nature. Now, as you go grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, you're going to, probably at the beginning, it's going to look a lot like this. You're going to be spending a lot more time over here under the operation of the sin nature than you are over here walking by means of the Holy Spirit. But as you begin to grow and mature, you know, that's going to change. Hopefully, you're going to spend more time under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, than you are under the flesh. Now, even a spiritually immature believer can be over here walking by means of the Spirit. Let me clarify what I'm saying here. Too often you have two... This verse is expressed in terms of one or two options. Either simply being filled with the Holy Spirit or spiritual maturity. You see, when we confess our sins, obviously we're filled with the Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We're restored to fellowship with the Lord. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can go forward. That's simply a static position. We use the diagram of the top and bottom circle to illustrate that. When you sin, you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. You come under the control of the sin nature. Instead of walking by means of the Spirit, you're out here walking in carnality. When you confess that sin, you immediately recover fellowship, the filling of the Holy Spirit, but you're not moving. That doesn't move you anywhere. It simply gets you somewhere. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, it's not talking about the fact that you just managed to confess your sins quickly, and now you're in fellowship so you can straighten this person out. 
He says, you who are spiritual. That's talking about the person who's not merely filled with the Spirit, just because they happen to have just confessed their sins. It's talking about the person who is walking by the Spirit. So that can be a spiritually immature believer who is spending as much time as possible walking by means of the Spirit, but they're still down here on the scale. It's not talking about just somebody who's up here at the top of the scale who's spiritually mature, because that spiritually mature person can also be out of fellowship. So it's not just spiritual maturity, and it's not just filling with the Spirit. It is somebody who is, of course, filled with the Spirit, but also walking and progressing in their spiritual life. And we see this because the mandate is to restore, which means to knit together. It's a word that was used of, of mending fishing nets. So just as you would mend those fishing nets to repair them so that they were now in a functional order spiritually, the idea is to restore this person, to knit them back together. They have failed. They've fallen. They're out of fellowship. Don't jump up and down on them telling them what a loser they are and how much it's hurt you and how disappointed you are. But if their attitude is, is, is growth, let's figure out how to solve the problem and move forward under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and how you can help. It's exhortation in terms of helping remind them simply of, of the problem-solving devices. It may involve more than that, but it really depends upon the level of intimacy in the relationship. So it is said to be, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now here we have the word pneuma. And pneuma is a very important word in the, um, in the Scripture, and it has a lot of different meanings. And sometimes we forget this, and we try to take a word like pneuma, and we, every time we see that, P-N-E-U-M-A, we try to make it refer to at least one of two things. It's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit. It's also used of the human spirit. But it can refer to wind or breath. It can also refer to a mental attitude or a disposition. Now, when it says here, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit, the human spirit, or wind. It's talking about having a certain mental attitude that should characterize the process of restoration. It's in contrast to that mental attitude of conceit or boasting back in verse 26. You do it with the attitude of gentleness, and that word for gentleness is prautes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S, which is listed in verse 22, or at the beginning of verse 23, of the fruit, the production of the Holy Spirit, is gentleness. And it has to do with grace orientation. This is not the person who is... Uh, uh, just simply recovered a little fellowship here, but is a person that has been uh, growing some and has uh, a mental attitude of grace orientation. He realizes that he's no better than the person corrected. It's the husband who has to deal with a situation in the wife's life and realizes, you know, I could be in the same situation doing something else next year, so I better, better handle it with uh, grace because I'm no better than they are. I've got the same sin nature. It's the boss who has to deal with a problem with an employee. And so he's going to utilize gentleness in the approach because we all have sin natures and we all fail and he's not going to have an attitude of arrogance or superiority. 
It's a recognition of authority orientation to God. That the issue is God, the issue is not me or my behavior or somebody else and their behavior or my standard. It is the issue of the Lord, so there's no holier-than-thou attitude slipping in here. It's grace orientation, and proutase is always humility in action. This isn't being some sort of milquetoast, mamby-pamby uh, carpet that somebody's going to walk on. Moses was called the, the uh, uh, man with the, the most humble man in the entire Bible. And this was a man who led a nation of between three and 5,000 rebellious Jews for 40 years through the wilderness. He was tough. He was strong. He was a very capable leader. He knew where he was going. He knew his position before the Lord. We've seen passages where he uh, even argued with the Lord for the benefit of the nation in his prayer so that the Lord would not wipe out the nation after they committed the sin of uh, idolatry at Mount Sinai. So that's an example of what the Bible means by humility. It's strength in the framework of grace orientation. Having a relaxed mental attitude, you're not bouncing off the walls because this person's committed that sin, and you're there for the sole purpose of being able to remind them of doctrine, help them go forward. So this whole thing, it's addressed, first of all, to not just anyone in the congregation. Secondly, the whole orientation of the paragraph is not on the importance or even the necessity of straightening someone out, but the attitude that you have to have when that comes into your life. The focus is on the mental attitude you must have of grace orientation and of forgiveness when it's necessary to to straighten someone out or get involved with someone who's really committed some terrible error or sin or mistake in their life. Third, there always seems to be some people who are so concerned about how other people dress, what they do, where they go, what kind of activities they are in. You know, Scripture calls those people busybodies. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. In other words, mind their own business. Fourth, we need to realize that people have a right to privacy and respect that privacy and maintain it and not talk about whatever failures that might be. That just increases the problems. It's not necessarily covering it up. Of course, if if somebody wants to continue in in sinful behavior and they don't want to deal with it and they don't want to straighten up, then you may have to deal with it in a different manner. But we're talking about restoration in a positive situation here. Okay, let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? This was what was mentioned back in verse 14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of Christ. It is the law of impersonal love. Now, that involves something. Peter had a question. In Matthew 18, after the Lord dealt with a situation similar to church discipline there, Peter said, but Lord, how many times do we forgive somebody who's really hurt and offended us? Seven times? That was the pharisaical thing. Well, seven times and that was it. You get seven chances. After that, no more. The Lord turned to Peter and he said, no, Peter, you forgive them 70 times seven. 
And that is an idiom for saying you never stop forgiving them. How many times have we committed the same sin that we know grieves and quenches the, Lord, the Holy Spirit and the Lord forgives us every single time? He never comes back and says, well, you know, I'm really tired of this. I'm not going to do it one more time, that's it. Forgive them 70 times. And that's difficult. That's why it demands grace orientation. That's why it demands a level of spiritual growth and maturity. We have talked about those initial problem-solving devices in terms of understanding confession, then the filling of the Holy Spirit, who's the power source in the spiritual life, then doctrinal orientation. We have to understand the basic orientation of Scripture, and then grace orientation. And these are fundamental things to learn in spiritual life because the advanced problem-solving devices, when you get up to your personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness, these are all based on these. And if you don't get these in place, especially in these hard areas of a relaxed mental attitude and forgiving one another in times of uh, when they've hurt you or offended you, then when it gets up here, you're just going to fall apart and you're just going to make some mistakes here by reacting in your own level of arrogance, not forgiving, not moving on, that are going to create more and more heartache. You're going to compound the problems because you react from a position. Often what happens in some situations, X does something in a relationship and it hurts Y. Y says, okay, because you did that, I'm going to react. I'm going to do something, whatever it is, but I'm going to react and I'm going to go off in this course of action. Well, what happens is the consequence of reacting and going in this is going to entail any number of worse consequences. Rather than going through the painful process of restoration. Now, if this person says, well, you know, I really don't care, that's a totally different thing. This person decides they're going to opt into carnality and they don't care and they don't want to be restored and they're really going to just do whatever they want to do. That entails a totally different procedure. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a situation where this person wants to go forward and Scripture, it's, it's terribly difficult to forgive one another 70 times 7. But listen to what the Scripture says about how we are to let doctrine impact our relationships. Romans 12:5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Every single believer that applies to. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another. That's the same word that's used for being devoted to prayer. It means making it a priority. Being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. So once again, it's the absence of judging and the focus is on what's best to move the, help move every party towards spiritual maturity. That's the thrust of Romans 14:19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's the focus. Galatians 5:13, we've seen, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for this flesh, but through love serve one another. 
If you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Ephesians 4.2 With all humility and gentleness, same words, same concept we have here, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ also has forgiven you. Now that's a convicting verse. That's the standard. That's the precedent. Is Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin, and so we are forgiven. At the point of salvation, we're forgiven of all pre-salvation sins, and at the point of confession, we are forgiven of all post-salvation sins. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences. That certainly is one arena. But there is forgiveness, which means an absence of mental attitude sins. No jealousy, envy, bitterness, hostility, no revenge motivation, no implacability. It is moving forward and going beyond the sin and putting that behind you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, when Paul says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, he's talking about the fact that, of course, we can't assume responsibility for somebody else's problems and sins in their life. You cannot do that. But what you can do is if you're in that close, depending on how close you are in that relationship with them, you can encourage them. That's the way you do it. It's, it's a reminder of doctrine within the, pride frame, not within the proper framework, not necessarily beating them over the head with it, not necessarily walking across. You don't want to walk across a church and tell somebody you don't know that. That's getting involved in their business. But somebody where you've already established that framework of trust and reliance and intimacy, and then you can... Say those things. You have a framework for it. Well, we're about out of time, so we'll come back and look at this, finish it up next time, starting in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the way it helps us to understand how to uh, deal with problems in our own lives so that we can avoid uh, making those problems even worse, so that we can avoid uh, the stress and internalizing the stress and operating and reacting by means of the sin nature, on difficult circumstances. Father, we pray for each of us that you'd help us to understand these principles we've studied, to understand how they apply to our lives. Father, we pray for anyone here who is uncertain of their eternal destiny. Perhaps all of this has gone over their head and they're not sure what Christianity really is. Christianity is a relationship with God the Father on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All you have to do to have eternal life is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All of the other things that we have studied this morning relate to the spiritual life that you have only after you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would remind us of these things and challenge us with these principles. In Jesus' name, amen.